I have brought you to laugh, to cry, to care. That feeling you get when the lights start to dim into darkness. Darkness. I have brought you to that place where heartbreak feels good. In your mind, your heroes feel like the best part of you. Stories feel perfect and powerful because we come to this place for horror. We come to this podcast to jump, to scream, to scare, because we need that. All of us, that heart-stopping feeling when the lights begin to dim and we go somewhere we probably shouldn't. Not just frightened, but somehow reanimated together. Terrifying images on a huge silver screen. Sound that makes my blood curl. Somehow, nightmares feel good in a place like this. Our monsters threaten the best part of us. And stories feel creepy and sinister. Because here, <laughs> they are. It's showtime. You think about me again, I'll cut you like a fish. Understand? Death has come to your little town, Sheriff. No, you can either ignore it or you can help me destroy it. The air itself is still warm. Welcome to another episode of In a Place Like This. I'm Chris Michael Smith, joined today by Clark Silva. Hello, everybody. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Clark. Uh, well, I am a indie curator here in Orange County. Um, I've been doing work for like Cal State Fullerton, the Fullerton Arboretum, uh, and most recently at a Museo Museum in Anaheim, where the first show I did there was a Legend of Sleepy Hollow exhibition. I did get to see that uh, Sleepy Hollow exhibition. It was very, very good. Thank you. Thank you very much. What would you say your favorite movie is? I can never answer this question. And I can never answer any, like, favorite one thing. Except for food, which is orange chicken. That's my favorite. Uh, But films, I almost have to, like, pick a genre and do favorites from that. Because I just can't pick one film. Fair enough. Well, we are in spooky season right now, so what's your favorite horror movie? My favorite horror movie is, and I have to break that down again, too. (laughs) So, I love the Universal Monster films, and so my favorite from that is The Invisible Man. I still need to see that Um, one. It's glorious, and he is one of the... Claude Rains, who we'll talk about later, too, uh, is the Invisible Man. And he's, like, the first, like, completely... Almost like the Joker from Batman. He's the first, like, completely, like, psychotic villain. And it's hilarious. I have seen this one. Yeah. It is is amazing. It's super... It's James Whale, so it's gay and campy and all kinds of fun. Um, But that's my favorite Universal one. And then I do have to say... I love trashy found footage films, and it's just my favorite's really good. It's Hell House LLC, and that's like a good 
of that genre. That one was amazing. But I'll just go on like Hulu and whatever kind of crappy found footage things. Uh, I think there's one called like Spirit Mountain or there was one called like Phoenix Project, which was an alien abduction. They're trashy and I just love watching them. Um, and then favorite slasher is Halloween. Of course. Yeah. The original 1978. The original and the new sequels. Yeah. Um, all of the Halloween sequels. Halloween 3 is its own separate thing. I don't quite consider that to be like a Halloween sequel. Still fun though. But it's fun. I like it. I like uh-huh. Halloween 3 a lot. Um, but from 4 till 9 or whatever it was, they're all pretty terrible. But Halloween and then Halloween 2018 and Halloween Kills, I really like. Yeah. I, a Halloween Kills grew on me over time. I had to like get used to... Um, apparently this was the point of the movie. That's why I had to like reevaluate it. But all the characters were ridiculously stupid. Yeah. <laughs> Every single one. <laughs> all bad choices. But I guess, you know, that kind of fits where it's, it's a night of chaos. And so nobody's thinking clearly. And so they're all doing the most stupid things that they can imagine doing. Yeah. A bit of a commentary on mob, uh, mob mentality. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very well done. Uh, but it took me a while to realize that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else you would briefly like to geek out about before we start our subject today? I love, I mean, the indie curation, so I'm always into kind of like art and history and stuff. And then whenever I can, something kind of stands out towards me that I can kind of do like a show or research on, I love. So art, history, um, and then kind of like I love getting into like the history of popular culture things. So I did that like with Sleepy Hollow uh, and we did that. Now at Museo, we opened the Harry Houdini show. Yeah. So he was someone I knew a little bit about, but then going deeper into like his personality and his history and all the kind of crazy, amazing stuff that he did uh, is something that I love doing. Nice. Christine Dubois will sing tomorrow night. Leave Paris. This is your last warning. You think you can become a great singer? Without suffering? Never sing my music again. Not here, not anywhere. Do you understand? Okay. I know the legend as well as you. He sold his soul to the devil so the world would love him for his talent. The devil had a price. He mutilated Desla's face so terribly that no one could stand to love him ever again for himself. Now, let me war upon you both. Ready? Watch this. All right, so today you wanted to discuss the Phantom of the Opera, or rather the many different renditions of it. Yes, I know you had asked me about like what we wanted to do, and I know we talked about something else. Um, but it was funny, I it was sort of the day you asked me, I had gotten Shudder, and the first thing that popped up, I think it was like just added, was uh, a movie we're going to talk about a little later. It was Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge, and I was like, oh my god. I have to see this. And then that's when I was like, oh, you know, I haven't like watched Phantom movies in a long time. I've always loved Phantom of the Opera. And so I wanted to ask you like, oh, why don't we do something that's maybe a little more like specific than just kind of a horror movie or Halloween thing was yeah. to go like a deep dive into one kind of classic property. Because I was going to kind of do that myself. Yeah. But then I was like, oh, well, this will be a great time to like talk to somebody about it too. It was kind of perfect too, because like... 
I didn't even know until I started doing research for this episode just how many times The Phantom of the Opera has been adapted. Yeah. Like, we're the movies we're going to be discussing today, we're discussing a lot of them, but we're barely scratching the surface on that. Yeah. Like, different cultures have had their own versions of it, different, uh, different like, renditions of it. The first talkie version of it, I believe it was called Song at Midnight? It was made in 1937, and it is a Chinese film, and it is a version of uh, *Phantom of the Opera*. Oh, so is that a like an official like they were adapting it, the book, or? Well, it, it's kind of it takes elements from it, but also apparently it takes elements from *The Hunchback of Notre Dame*. This is okay. It's one that's been on my watch list for a while, but I haven't had a chance to actually see it. That would be interesting. Because we, for this one, we just did kind of like the big classic ones. But I'm sure that there's a couple of silent films like before Universal. And then um, there's one we'll probably talk about later that we just haven't found, which was (laughs) Robert Englund's. And then I can imagine that there's a bunch of foreign adaptations as well that would be really interesting to see how they do do that story. There were some lost films uh, that from before before the the silent one we're going to be talking about as well. Uh, one, I believe, from Germany that was, like, famously lost. But that oh, was, okay, uh, nice. I, I believe that was, like, the first, first one. Yeah. It is, of course, based on the uh, gothic horror romance by Gaston, I'm going to butcher this last name because it is French, Leroux? Leroux. Leroux. Gaston Leroux. It was serialized in a Belgian newspaper from 1909 to 1910, but it became such a big deal that, again, it spawned many many adaptations in film and literature and comic books and just about every on the stage uh i didn't realize how many stage adaptations of phantom of the opera there were not just the two i'm aware of makes sense (laughs) it makes very much sense that a book about stage productions gets a bunch of stage adaptations um outside of the big huge one the andrew lee one that looms over everything else phantom of the opera yeah one thing that i thought was interesting is that it was inspired by true events yes so uh larue was a uh he was actually a reporter first before being like an author and so he was kind of an investigative journalist and when he was inspired by like edgar Allan poe and um arthur conan doyle to start being like well i can be a writer too like i can write books he drew on like his journalism to kind of piece together real stories from the history of the Paris opera and then also kind of fake stories. Uh, so like real ones was ones that um, where the chandelier collapses after a fire and where they had found like the underground lake. But then there were some things that he wrote about being true, like the disappearance of Christine Daae and finding a body in the cistern that was like holding rings that was a famous one he was like oh this is real but it's like it's not really real but he knew kind of like how to stitch together real and imaginary things to create a really kind of interesting story for me it's always been super interesting that kind of like legend of sleepy hollow it's tied to a real place which i think kind of helps with the way that people respond to it is it's like oh it's a real place and that's where you get kind of like the legends and the urban kind of myths about things yeah i that's that might be uh part of why the story has like resonated for so long i think so because it's kind of like you get that where people don't know 
what's real and what's not. And so they ascribe like the, the fiction to the real place. And so it becomes like uh, with Sleepy Hollow, I was watching someone give a tour on YouTube and she was talking about like, oh, this is where Ichabod Crane lived. And like, this is where like the Van Tassels lived. And you're like, well, these are fake people, yeah. but they become so part of like the culture that I imagine that there's tourists in Paris that go, well, where's, we want to see the Phantom's Lair. Right. And they're like, oh, that's not a real thing. Sorry. It's real in our hearts. It's real in our hearts. <laughs> it's real to us. So we kind of touched on this a little bit. What would be your connection to the Phantom of the Opera? Like, what brought you into the story? It's probably the same for everybody, which is the musical. Uh, my parents were both into musicals and music, so we played, like, instruments and all that fun stuff. I played piano for about 10 years. Uh, but my mom loved Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals. And so when we were young, she was always playing them. And then she would buy us soundtracks and kind of, like, compilation CDs and stuff. So it was, like, Jesus Christ Superstar... Cats, Evita, and the Phantom of the Opera. And Phantom, she had, there's a famous book that was produced, I think in the early 90s, that was kind of a making of the musical. So we had that book and I loved reading it, but that book also went into the history of Gaston Leroux and uh, Gardner building the opera house and then all the other adaptations too. So as I became more like enamored with the story and the music, I wanted to know more about like, where it came from and stuff like that. And the hook was always that, oh, this was like a real story. So you get kind of caught up in all of that drama and stuff. But uh, it was definitely the movie or the, uh, the musical. I had not seen the silent film until years later. So for me, Phantom Film starts with uh, Claude Rains. So Universal still, but not Lon Chaney. Phantom of the Paradise. And then afterwards kind of going into like the Hammer one. Uh, and then now for this one, seeing uh, the silent one. So surprisingly for me, um, it wasn't the musical, although oh, I was okay. aware of it. Uh -huh. So my brother had bought a book called Just Phantom. It was written by Susan Kay. Oh, okay. I read yeah. that one in high school and I fell in love with it. Yeah, I think there's a couple of, I don't know if she, she's probably not the same author. But there was kind of a trend of kind of romance authors doing like their own sequels. It was almost like fan fiction that was published. Yeah. And I think like Gone with the Wind has that. There's a famous one called Rhett, which was like that. And I think that one, that Phantom one is one of those two where it's kind of like it's a, it's like another reinterpretation from this author's kind of like perspective on it. Yeah, it, it's, I kind of compare it a little bit with uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh, uh-huh. Because you, you get the story from multiple different perspectives. Oh, uh-huh. Like, part of it, you follow the Phantom, and then you go to Christine, and then you go to Raoul, and I thought it was very well done. And it kind of, yeah. like, gives another layer to the Phantom. Awesome. Which is nice. Yeah, I know, because one of the things, too, is if you read, um, and people get shocked by this when they read kind of, like, Frankenstein or Dracula or Phantom, is that they're not, like, traditional novels. Like what you say with Dracula, it's you go from every other person's like kind of like journals and diaries and stuff. And Frankenstein is written in like flashback. Uh, it starts with them in the ice and Victor is kind of retelling the story. And then Phantom is that way too, where it is Gaston Leroux is like investigating these disappearances and murders and stuff. And so he's interviewing like the managers and like 
there's a character called the Persian who is not in any of the film adaptations, but he's an important person in the book. Uh, so it's written almost kind of like a guy investigating a real true story, which sucks you into it as well. I need to read that book. Still, have it's to. very good. It's really good. And I think, like, I think one of the reasons I wanted to choose this too was I feel like Phantom, the book, the movies, the character, the story is all strangely underrated. In that the musical just looms so large over everything, and all this other stuff I think gets like lost in that. Um, so it's good to kind of look at this story, why it's so popular and enduring, and then how that story is adapted from 1925 was that the first one yeah. to um i think the latest is 89 for well i guess oh, 2004, 2004 2004 for the the musical movie adaptation uh but 89 i think is the phantom of the mall i think that's yeah for and those the, and the, the robert england i believe they came out the same year oh did they oh yeah. okay Oh, the year for Phantom. Right? <laughs> All right, so 1925 was the first of the major well-known ones. There were a few beforehand from, like, the silent era, but this is the one that, like, stuck. Directed by Rupert Julian, but there was uncredited work by Lon Chaney himself and also Ernst Lamley and uh, Edward Sedgwick, uh, starring Lon Chaney as the Phantom and Mary Philbin as Christine. Uh, this is... I'm noticing a string of, like, mixed reception for pretty much all of the Phantom movies. Yeah, I think what the... And I was looking through uh, reviews and stuff. Phantom is a kind of strange story in that it is horror and romance. So if you read the book, the kill count is higher than any of, like, the film adaptations. But the romance is there. And I think for filmmakers that's a hard kind of thing to try to do both so you have people wanting a phantom that's more horror and sometimes the adaptations are not that yeah and you want an adaptation that's more the romance and then they're not that and so they're almost um i don't want to say like schizophrenic but it's that where you can't quite do one or the other and it's weird to do both at the same time because um, I'm kind of watching some of these being like, I want more blood. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're like, well, no, because they're doing the romance stuff. Or the romance isn't quite there. It's a little weird. Um, and they're trying to be spooky. So I think sometimes it's uh, a little hard to get this movie right. Yeah. Which is one of those things where it's kind of like maybe it's one of those unadaptable books where the book works, but the films don't quite work the same way. That's why, like, with these movies, like, each individual one, you kind of, like, have to meet it where it is. Yes. Like, yeah. this one is, like, that. this one's leaning way, way into the horror. Yes. And I think, and another thing that is sort of funny when I was watching this one was it's sort of strange to watch something that is so reliant on music to be silent. Yeah. <laughs> and you're kind of like, you know, they're talking about Christine and her singing and how she's great. And, and they're like, I just hear silent movie ragtime yeah. all through this film. Like it's hard to kind of like be drawn into it when that whole part of it is missing. Apparently this one did get redone with sound. Yes. And I know Lon Chaney refused to do dub. So I think there only is one part 
where the phantom speaks uh, and it's somebody else. I don't know who it is. Um, there's a scene where uh, you see the phantom from the shadows and that's where his voice is and it's somebody else. It's just some guy yeah. <laughs> reading the lines and stuff. Um, but I think this one was pretty, I don't know if it was more successful than Hunchback or less, but it was, it was successful enough for Universal to keep doing the horror thing. Yeah, it's considered um, like the first of their major monster movies. Yeah. And it's the only one that I'm aware of that's silent, because it goes in, the rest of them are all like talkies, like Dracula and- Yeah, because I think it's late 20s, and so I think sound is coming. Yeah. Because um, by the time you get to the early 30s, it's all sound. Yeah. And the other famous silent horror films are all much earlier. I feel like if you yeah. look at like uh, Nosferatu and not Cabinet even, of Doctor Caligari. Either, yeah, yeah that's like Europe, and that's even like nineteen yeah. seventeen, eighteen. So I think you're kind of like right before sound, which I think is why they well, if the the sound version was released in nineteen twenty nine, so they're yes. close. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's like right there before before sound takes over, and they could have done it in sound. Unfortunately, apparently the sound version doesn't really exist anymore. I don't think so. I think that's what I heard was it was kind of it's a lost like it was yeah. done out. It was lost in a fire, sadly. Yeah. <laughs> Phantom ghost. Oh, of course. The opera ghost strikes again. Uh, speaking of the opera ghost, uh, apparently there's like a legend behind the interior set that the movie was filmed in, which still is standing today. It's the oldest standing interior set in Hollywood. Yeah, it's, I know in 2014, there were rumblings of it being destroyed because I think they were tearing the soundstage down. Uh, I tried to look at that because I wanted to be like, is it still there, is it gone? And there hasn't been anything since they announced that they were trying to save it. They weren't gonna yeah. destroy it. But there hasn't, I haven't seen anything uh, lately about that so maybe it's still there that soundstage is still there I think apparently um, accidents occur to anyone who does try to take it down oh, so legend is that Lon Chaney's ghost haunts that set and will not let anybody take it down I could see that because even that set is so important to all this other I mean it's they use it again in the 41, yeah. which we talk about. Um, it's been used in a bunch of other stuff too so it's kind of like and I know like Universal like they, there was that huge fire a couple of years ago that destroyed a bunch of the back lots, and it would be like such a shame that for them to like just get rid of it. I don't think yeah. they will. It's but kind of a point of pride for them. If you ever go on the studio tour at Universal Studios, they do point out. I forget which stage number it is. 28? I think it's stage 28. Yeah, they do point it out, and it is like the oldest like sound stage in Hollywood, if I'm not mistaken. It might be. It's almost think, a century old. Yeah. I think a lot of the other sound stages are gone or newer. I think that's the oldest. Another thing I found it pretty interesting about this movie, again, I don't know how true this is. This is like one of those alleged accounts, oh, but uh -huh. uh, Lon Chaney uh, kept his makeup a secret from like the rest of the cast to the point where... Um, in the unmasking scene, Mary Philbin's reaction is allegedly real. I've heard that, and I've heard that from sources that I would trust, so I think that might be true. There's, a, there's an amazing, amazing documentary called Universal Horror, 
on, it's kind of old, I think it's early 2000s, but it's all about the history of the Universal Monster films. And they talk about that. So if that documentary is saying that that's a true thing, I'm more inclined to be like, okay, yeah. Because that makes more sense to kind of do that to get those performances. Because you kind of see that a lot in films where yeah. they kind of hide things like that and then they reveal it and then it's the reactions you're getting are their real reactions. Like so I could see that, yeah. And that's amazing considering uh, it was self-applied. Like he did his own makeup. Yeah. That, I mean, you can go all kind of into a uh, history of filmmaking with Lon Chaney and just all of the, like, he's the first, like, special effects superstar. Um, and what's interesting is how he had to make his makeup with the technology at the time. Just, like, they talk about uh, he had to, like, wire his nose. So his nose is being, he's not wearing kind of, like, prosthetics or anything over for that, like, death face. It's a wire pulling back his nose, and then he's kind of like putting it. So he's kind of going through a lot of pain. Yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> to uh, get these makeups and stuff. Silent film Lon Chaney Phantom is the closest to the books, but it's also the one where the face looks the most like what it's supposed to look like from the books. It's an iconic look. Like, yeah. I'm sure everyone knows the what the Phantom, Lon Chaney's Phantom looks like. Yeah. Without the mask. Yeah. So in 1943, Universal took another stab at Phantom <laughs> of the Opera, uh, this time directed by Arthur Lubin, starring Claude Rains as the Phantom, with Susanna Foster as Christine. Dubois this time instead of Diane. Yes. So that is something, when I... Throughout this whole podcast, if I refer to... They change the characters' names and everything. Yeah. So if I say Eric, that's the Phantom. Yes. <laughs> if I say Christine, that's Christine. Raul is Raul, and Carlotta is Carlotta, regardless yeah. of... Because I don't understand why, but they will change everybody's name in every film adaptation. Yeah. Um, so instead of Christine Daae, she's Christine Dubois. And I don't know if they just wanted everybody to be more French. Yeah. I mean, um, Daae is already a pretty French name. Yeah, she is Swedish. Um, in the story because I guess in some weird way Eric and Christine are both from the same place yeah um, in Scandinavia but yeah Daae is not super not French yeah but yeah so I don't understand why they change everybody's (laughs) names all the time yeah of all the adaptations this is my favorite same this is the one that like really stood out it looks gorgeous in fact it it's the only Phantom movie to have Oscars Oh, yeah. Like, it won for Best Color Cinematography, Best Color Art Direction, uh, was nominated for Sound Recording and Score. Uh, It's the only Universal Monster movie to win an Oscar, as well as... Take that creature from the Black Lagoon. Would you say this counts as a classic Universal Monster movie? I, I do, and I don't... He never... Sometimes when you see if, like, the merchandise that's universal monsters if they if they reference phantom it's sometimes mostly lon chaney which i get i mean that's a super iconic like face and you are dealing with a character that hides behind a mask yeah but i do consider this to be universal um it may not be lon chaney classic in that kind of way but i do consider this to be part of that lineage it's just so happens to be that this is one that gets like two film adaptations when i mean there's sequels for frankenstein and dracula and stuff but um 
I consider it to be a universal monster movie. Yeah. I think it's good enough to be part of that lineage, of course. It's, yeah. Again, my favorite version of Phantom. It's just, it's so gorgeous. Yeah. It just looks so good. Um, and Claude love, Rains. I love that Technicolor aesthetic. Yeah. Like from the early 40s. Yeah. And they use it so well. They do. Like, if this is, and it's the same stage, so it's the same Phantom stage as the Lon Chaney one, but it just looks, it has such a different, like, feeling to it. Uh, and the Technicolor is just sort of saturated and gorgeous in the set design. Um, and I think Claude Rains in this is the best. Yes. Um, and, oh gosh, there's so much I can talk about this one. Um, so Claude Rains kind of, so there's a thing with this film where they tried to make, story-wise, uh, the Phantom Christine's father. I guess during dailies, they felt that it was starting to look like incestuous. But I still kind of interpret it as that, as yeah. um, Eric in this, because he's Eric something. But there's things where, so like in this film has like that lullaby, and Christine talks about hearing it her whole life. And there's different things where, there's a scene where um, this film has Nelson Eddy, the great opera singer, and he's great. Um, he is now a rope, they created this character where he works at the opera too. And there's like a love, tri love triangle between him, Raoul, who's now an inspector, and Christine. And they find this bust of Christine that uh, Nelson Eddy's character made. And they assume that Eric the Phantom has stolen it. And they talk about, well, is he in love with her? And they're like, oh no, he's like super old. It must be something else. Like they always hint in this film that there's something else happening between the Phantom and Christine. And I feel that that is something that the book had that talks a lot about like the way and why Christine kind of like goes with the Phantom because in a lot of these movies he kind of just kidnaps her and she's like okay I'll yeah. sing for you um, but like in the book there's this whole thing of like and then the musical the angel of music you know her father passes away and says that he'll send the angel of music to like guide her so she thinks the Phantom is that yeah and so this film still has this father-daughter connection that makes it seem more like well this is why Christine kind of goes with the phantom because she kind of maybe like subconsciously knows that he's her father yeah and there's a little hint at the end too about christina's like oh i like i don't know there's something about him that like draws me to him or something and i'm like because she he's your dad Christine, yeah. he's your dad um so there's a bit more like he's the most sympathetic i think you know him giving away all his money for christine to have like the singing lessons um he's just so like, he's just the best Phantom. And one of the things we were, I was watching it um, today is when that scene where he thinks that his music has been stolen and he goes from like worried and sad to like angry in like this super subtle way where he starts to get like really intense. I was like, God, oh, Claude Rains, like you're just Jesus, the so best. Good. Uh, what I found surprising, uh, especially considering how this movie turned out, because this movie like had like that depth, that gravitas to it, it was apparently originally planned as an Abbott and Costello comedy. I think I heard that too, because I guess, and so this is something when you look, you have to look at like universal horror monster history and kind of like World War II and stuff that's happening at the same time. 
the most popular universal horror film before this one was, I think, Abbott Costello make Frankenstein. Yep. So they were going to be like, well, let's just do it again with, you know, let's go through every monster and have Abbott and Costello. Um, I don't quite know why they didn't do that. Um, I think maybe it was Technicolor and they were like, oh, let's do it like this. Yeah, I, that might have been it. I mean, I wouldn't have been against seeing that version of the film, but not at the expense of this one. Yeah, no, I don't think if it's one or the other, I would rather we still have this one. And no, I would not trade it in for an Abbott and Costello uh, Meet the Phantom film. Surprisingly, contemporary reviews for this one were still mixed. Yeah, and I think um, this one does, it does that weird thing where this one does lean more romance. Yeah. Uh, He does kill people. Yes. But it's less scary. And, you know, he's, his face is sort of revealed at the very end, so it's very quick, and then he dies. And so I think that this is one where you, it's hard to prepare yourself. Like, am I seeing a horror phantom? Am I seeing a romance phantom? So if you go into this film thinking more romance, and it's funny, too. This yeah. one's actually really funny. Um, if you go into it with that expectation, I think you'll come out of it. Uh, liking it a lot. Don't go in thinking that it's going to be Lon Chaney or scary or whatever. Uh, It's much more romance heavy than anything else. Also, this is not the only time that this happened with a Phantom movie, but there was a planned sequel to it that got released as a separate thing. It was called The Climax. Yeah, and is Vincent Price... Uh, let's see. Totally unrelated. But Karloff, yeah. Karloff came in for that one. Oh, it's Boris Karloff. That's right. Yeah. That's right. He is sort of the pervy uh, opera owner or yeah. something like that. Yeah. I guess the original plan was to have that be a sequel to this movie, but I guess some reason or another they decided to rework it and have it be its own original thing. Yeah. I don't know why, but that that's going to happen a it's, lot for these happened, other ones. It's happened again. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to happen a couple of times with this property. Um, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't know what happened. Oh, I think, oh, I think Claude Rains didn't want to do it. Yeah. I think it was something like yeah. that. He didn't want to come back. And so they're like, okay, well, we got Boris Karloff, and now it's going to be told something totally different. Yeah. Um, got the other I, Universal Monster guy. Yeah. You're like, well, Claude Rains can do it, so here's Boris Karloff. Right. <laughs> and it's kind of, I mean, I was just thinking about that right now, where you talk about with Universal, you know, it's Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. But Claude Rains is there, too. Like, he's been Claude in a Rains. couple of them, too. Lon Chaney Jr., I believe, right? Yes. He's with, Wolfman. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he's anybody else. That might have been it. But, um, but yeah, Claude Rains, I think, is a, uh underrated Universal Monster actor. I think so, too. Especially, like, with his performance in this movie and The Invisible Man. He's, yeah. He's great. He's two totally different characters. And I think that's why they're some of my favorites, is because of how great he is as an actor. Yeah. And that brings us to the 1962 Hammer version, directed by Terrence Fisher. Starring uh, Herbert Long as the Phantom and Heather Sears as Christine. From what I've read, Christopher Lee was considered for the part of the Phantom. Yeah, I think this one had this this poor movie. Uh. <laughs> um, it's I want to include this because it's part of uh, the great Hammer horror series of films, which are um, if people are unfamiliar with that, uh, in like the late fifties, early sixties. 
this British film company Hammer wanted to, what they wanted to do first was to rip off all of the Universal monster films and do kind of like uh, their own kind of crappy knockoff versions. And Universal was like, no. So they partner to make these films and they get more money and that's when you get um, Christopher Lee's Dracula and kind of like the Peter Cushing Frankenstein films. They are also known for being like super gothic and super gory, which is why I was excited when I learned that there was a Hammer version of Phantom, because I was like, oh, we're gonna get, you know, Blood and Guts Phantom. And unfortunately, like this film is not bad, but I was like, oh, yeah. this is the least bloody Phantom, or at least even the least bloody Hammer film yeah. I've seen. Um, and I don't know if that's because this is later, because I think it's a it's pretty soon that Britain goes into that kind of moral panic about films with like the video nasties. And I don't know if this film, they pulled back on that. Um, Cause this movie has deaths, but knowing Hammer films, you're like, well, that there could have been way more blood when that rat catcher gets <laughs> his yeah. eye stabbed. Like that could have been better handled. I was, but. yeah, I was also kind of underwhelmed by this one. And I usually like the Hammer films. I did enjoy their Dracula. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this one, I got the least from it. it out of the ones that we watched for this episode, personally. Yeah, I think the same because it doesn't, you know, it sort of becomes run-of-the-mill Phantom. Yeah. And it loses, it because they didn't push that hammer horror, it doesn't stand out from any other adaptations. Um, they move from Paris to London, and it does feel a bit more Britishy. You know, like you got kind of like, an almost kind of British camp. A little bit of James Whale almost, like with the sort of drunken cabbies. Yeah. And then those like scalper women. Um, Michael Goh is in it. So it's, and he was a big hammer person. Yeah. Hammer actor. So it's interesting. Like if you know him from the Batman films uh, or Sleepy Hollow, he's in that. I mean, Sleepy Hollow, Tim Burton's was a tribute to hammer yeah. films. So he cast everybody from those movies. But yeah, it just doesn't. None of the changes to the story really kind of like add anything. It almost felt a little Moulin Rouge-ish where you got the sort of like perverse uh, music patron in Michael Goh's character, Lord Darcy, where he's like auditioning women because of how like pretty they are and, you know, inviting Christine to his apartment and stuff. It felt like Moulin Rouge for a little bit. Like it looked good. And I do really like the way the Phantom looks yeah, in this one. It's a good look. Much more raggedy. He's got kind of like the gray skin blends with his gray mask. And he's got the kind of crazy Beethoven hair. Um, and I did like that it doesn't tell you everything right up front. You, it, It's kind of a mystery. And they're kind of figuring out like who the Phantom is and why he's kind of sabotaging this opera. Uh, but it never quite takes off yeah. from those points. It felt like it played it too safe, which is disappointing because Hammer, I don't think they're known for that. No, they are like, if you watch this first <laughs> and then you watch like Horror of Dracula or Frankenstein or some of the other horror ones, you're gonna be like, oh my God, <laughs> like what happened? I think- I There's blood everywhere. I, I'm interested in like the cast that could have been, like Christopher Lee was considered for the film. Yeah, that would have been really cool. And Cary Grant for the romantic lead. 
That would have been really cool too, because I don't. I mean, I don't know who other than Michael Go. I don't know who these other actors are. Yeah, never heard of them before. But yeah, Cary Grant and Christopher Lee would have been like an amazing <laughs> pairing of two actors. I don't know if they would have been able to get Cary Grant, but um, would they? I well, I guess it, that then depends on how violent you're going to make this movie. Was he supposed to be Phantom? So what I read initially was that he was originally going to be Phantom. That's what I heard. Under under that, there was like almost a correction to that going, oh no, he was actually considered for the Rowell-ish character. Yeah, which makes more sense. Because, I mean, he's done thrillers. Yeah. So I don't see that he would be against it per se, but that would probably then depend. Like if he looked at this script... Maybe he would have been like, okay, or I don't know. I think but it, was it was something like that. Like, he read the script and was like, no, thank you. Okay. I wonder if it was more violent. <laughs> if he would have been like, yes, yeah, sign me up for that. Yeah. Um, and one of the things is, in sort of an aside, is the poster for this film looks amazing. It's yeah. like the chandelier on fire with the phantom, like, cutting it off. And talk about disappointment. Yeah. Because, like, in this one, uh, the chandelier falls at the end on him uh and you're like oh yeah okay <laughs> great disappointing wonderful <laughs> yeah so this was one that i was the most disappointed in and this one again got kind of it was poorly received by critics it flopped at the box office uh to the point where terence fisher uh fell out with the studio for a while oh yeah um and it wasn't, it didn't get that reappraisal either. If you look at its current Rotten Tomatoes score, it's one of the lower rated, like it's 50, 40%, something like that. Yeah. So a lot of these films, like the Claude Rain one, Claude Rain's one has been reappraised. Yeah. Um, but this one, yeah, even kind of looking back, it's sort of, it's it's one of those what could have been, I yeah. think. Like you've talked about what what it could have been if Christopher Lee was in it. Yes. What it could have been if they umped up the gore and blood in it. Um, it's just it's one of those kind of sad films. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Again, my least favorite out of the ones that we watched uh, yeah. for this episode. And now we get into like the interesting and more experimental territory. Oh yeah. Here we go. I <laughs> didn't want to bring this up before now but we're gonna get into it yeah 1974 brian de palma famous for scarface and uh the untouchables made phantom of the paradise a rock opera starring william finley as the phantom and jessica harper the character's not christine but she's basically she's christine, christine. she's that thing where i'm gonna call her christine because that's <laughs> that's who she is this one did land an Oscar nomination for Best Original Song Score when that was a thing. Yes, this is so one of the many things we can talk about this is the music in this. Um, it's, so oh God, good. what's his name? He's the little guy. He plays Swan. Oh, and gosh. he wrote um, he wrote the songs for this one. He wrote the songs for the Muppet movie. Paul Williams. Paul Williams, That's, yes. And so he wrote the songs for this one and they're so good. Like, and I had sort of forgot about that. I hadn't seen this movie in a long time. And I forgot how good, like, the Phantom song is and the song that Christine auditions to and how good that is. Uh, and then, like, all the great, like, there's the Juicy Fruits. Yeah. And, like, their songs. And then um, Beef's song. Yes. Um, and that's something that I, I had totally forgotten. I was like, oh, God, these songs are so great. Oh, what was song was it that was 
nominated. Oh, the, the entire score was nominated. Oh, the whole score? Oh, okay. Because they, they used to have an Oscar for, like, original song score. Oh, okay. For Because I guess more musicals were, were being made at the time. Oh, yeah. It's visually interesting. Uh, it's different from any other version of The Phantom that uh, yeah. I had seen. Uh, for sure. <laughs> one thing that is not surprising to me, as soon as I read it, I'm like, this makes sense. This definitely tracks... Daft Punk cited it as their favorite film. Oh and yeah, their influence. I could that helmet is Daft Punk <laughs> written all over it. So right. I have to say, so start in on this movie. Uh, it's got the coolest looking Phantom. Yes. Um, the whole like leather biker <laughs> Phantom with his like owl helmet, and then he gets um I forget where he takes it from the cape. There's that scene at the very end where he swings in to kill Swan and his cape is like billowing and he's got the whole like bird thing. Like this is just the coolest uh, phantom ever, probably. And it one of the things too is like the rock opera-ness of it. Like I don't think it's, what's interesting is how it retains the, the phantom spectacle that's kind of associated with this story. But then successfully adapts that for like the 70s yeah um and it's something where i don't think you could like if you were to try and do that kind of adaptation today like i don't think you quite could without making it like rock or metal or something like a like a country yeah country phantom. like yeah like phantom of the opry grand Ole opry i don't think that's gonna work yeah. like i don't think it needs that like out, larger than life out of this world maybe if you did like an EDM Daft Punk kind of thing. sci-fi about it. Yeah, it's super weird. It's got all kinds of funny cuts and like cinematography yes. where it will go from like your traditional kind of like camera setups to like serial killer first person to like, I think I made a note of like where um, almost like an evil dead yeah where it's chasing like when finley is in swan industries and he's trying to get to swan about like you stole my music and then it's like chasing him like an evil dead yeah uh zombie ghost thing like it's so um everything about this movie is out there but it's all wonderful it all works um, kind of like schlocky campy but in the best way possible yeah like this is and oh, i was gonna say so this is classic midnight movie yes um and i think and i don't know if this is true for other people but um my kind of like coming to queerness came with seeing a bunch of movies at the same time and it was clue it was the rocky horror picture show and it was phantom of the paradise and that's where you kind of it almost feels like queer language is yep. being developed in those like that's how you learn about camp where you learn about like queer expression. I know beef in Phantom of the Paradise borderlines that kind of exploitation. Yeah. Where you don't quite know, like he's clearly gay. And they say the F word, I think a couple yeah. of times, but the film is so, and it's very different from the way that the F word's used in like John Hughes movies, where Phantom of the Paradise is so gay and it's so <laughs> camp that I feel that that kind of feeds into it a little bit. So just like if you have not seen Phantom of the Paradise, just know that that word pops up. Yeah. Um, but beef is so funny and 
his lines steal the show so much. Like he's the funniest person in there. He's not in there super long. Yeah. Um, but I feel that's almost quite like it's the borderline between like Frankenfurther on one end and then maybe kind of like like if Frankenfurther is kind of like we're embracing the queerness. Yeah. Like they're villains and stuff like kind of like that, but it's very I don't want to say pro-gay, but it's very like celebratory of everyone's queerness yes. kind of a thing. And Phantom of the Paradise, I feel, is almost on that line between where maybe it's it's not making fun of gay people in the way that maybe things did before, or uh, we just were watching the um, Queer for Fear documentary on Shudder. I still need to see that. And so they were talking about um, Hitchcock and Rope and Psycho, where there's queer characters, but they're kind of like Hitchcock maybe saying that they're bad because they're gay. I don't think Phantom is that, Phantom of the Paradise is that, but maybe coming out of that, and then we kind of go into more, I don't want to say acceptance, but that where queerness is not like bad in and of itself yeah. kind of a thing. Um, but yeah, and I it's so funny because I think I saw all these films at the same time, and I know my mom rented them for me. So when I think back on that, I'm wondering if like, oh, my mom knew. Yeah. <laughs> she knew I was gay and she wanted me to sort of see these films to maybe see how I would react to them. And as soon as I saw them, I was like, this is wonderful. Yeah, they were This so is amazing. Good. And it, it's, again, another case of like a movie doing not so great at its initial release. It apparently didn't do well at the box office at all. Um, but now it has a cult following. Yeah, and um, I've seen so much more like references to it. Um, the Frida shows it. Yeah. Um, if you're unfamiliar, the Frida is a it's a queer owned art house um, theater in Santa Ana, California, and they do Rocky Horror all the time. Oh, yeah. and they've done um, Phantom of the Paradise a lot too. Yeah. Also, the lawsuits apparently that went towards this movie because uh, this was not an official adaptation no and what is interesting about this one is so aside from just adapting phantom to a rock opera they do this film is very it's phantom mixed with faust yeah because there is clearly a supernatural element to it with swan and like signing deals with the devils uh which plays into because faust is an important opera in the book so i think they kind of took that and put the Faust story itself into this, but I guess it would be weird that they would get lawsuits because I'm like, it's the book came out in like 1910. I'm like, yeah. we're clearly in public domain territory. Right. And uh, also Marvel apparently sued because I guess they had their own phantom character. Oh, that looks like? Yeah. That one? Oh, okay. I have to look into that because yeah. I don't... That doesn't... I don't know. I don't know anything about that. Um, I've never even heard of it. So yeah. maybe it was like bigger in the 70s. I, I don't know. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Uh, me not knowing a comic book character that isn't one of the A-listers? Of course <laughs> yeah. not. How would I not know that? And s sticking with the sort of experimental adaptations of Phantom of the Opera, 1989, we see Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. This, I, I, I don't even know... <laughs> Where <laughs> to start with this? I'll, I'll let you go first. So, number one, this is right up my alley. This I love... If you've listened to my episode on uh, bad movies, 
uh, you know that this sort of thing is just my cup of tea. This is like schlocky B-movie. Uh, everything is wrong, but oh, so right. Yeah, it's, no, <laughs> this is, and I didn't know what, I had I'd never heard of this film before. The only, I mean, I had sort of, you know, I think it was a Disney Channel original film. Was it was a Phantom of the Megaplex or something like that? Honestly, I thought when you mentioned this one, I thought that's what you were talking about. Yeah, maybe the part two is yeah. we'll go deeper into Phantom movies and we'll do that that one. Um, but I had never heard about this at all, and I was like, it's the one that started, like I said earlier, it's the start of the one that me thinking of like, let me just go through all the Phantom films and I'll add this one in there, uh, and I was like, because that's such a What's so cool about a story like this that lasts is it survives to be adapted into different time periods and everybody's going to do their own different thing with it. And so what a fantastic uh, version to do an 80s slasher. Like, I just love that this version of it exists. Yes. Like, there is a mall-centric slasher film, Phantom, and just, like, how glorious that is that exists and it's so 80s like oh my like <laughs> and you had mentioned this and i almost was like is this the same movie or are they reusing footage is it's chopping mall yeah it's the um, mall from chopping mall it's the mall from chopping mall and then it starts the same way with them like opening it yeah and i was like did i accidentally because chopping mall is on my list on shutter too and I was like, did I start the wrong movie? Yeah. <laughs> like, what is this? Uh, and I believe two of the actors are, are show up in both movies in the same, like, sequence, if I'm not... Do they? Is I the, think so. Is the, um... I could be wrong about that, but the, I feel I like... I think she... I don't think they say exactly who she is in um, Eric's Revenge. I think she's the mayor. Yeah. Is she in Chopping Mall? I want to say... Because like, she looked familiar. There was a couple in Chopping Mall that I believe also showed up in this film. Okay. Because, like, well, oh, so that was one of the things I wanted to bring up is I'm, I recognize I recognize almost this whole cast, but I don't, other than Polly Shore, Pauly we have to Shore. say that Polly Shore is in this movie, but the, the, the Raul, yeah. the photographer guy, I'm like, he looks familiar. And then the main, Christine looks familiar. Um, and then the mayor, we'll call her the mayor, because I don't know who else she is in this movie. Because she's not the mall owner, that's the guy. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I was like, everybody looks familiar in this film, and I don't know where any of them are from. But they must all be from other, other <laughs> craptastic like 80s, 80s films. that, like... Going back to it being sort of adaptations and how adaptations change and stuff. You know, like you had Phantom of the Paradise was so... I mean, the 70s... And like the rock and metal and like the counterculture stuff and how they took the Phantom story and made it like a record company and kind of like all that stuff. How like perfect was it? It's the 80s malls slasher films because the film is 89. Yeah. So that's kind of the end of the 80s slasher like bubble, I guess. Yeah. But like this, it's just so and the way that they adapt the story like uh i laughed out loud when they went into like his lair and like how 80s it was and he's got like a gym and stuff and she's watching so like in the story and classic stuff you know the phantom takes christine into his lair she wakes up he's at the piano the organ she comes up behind him and she takes his mask yeah and that's the big reveal well in this one 
He does the same thing. He takes her into his lair. She wakes up, and he's at like a like a bench press mis- machine or something. I was like, that's wonderful. Like yeah. I don't know if they parts of this film make it seem like they are intentionally making a bad film. So I don't know if someone was like, he's got to be at a bench press machine or something like that. Like I don't know if they like. I don't know if this movie is self-aware of itself. Yeah, it's not obvious. And usually when they do stuff like that, it's like, okay, you're clearly trying to make this a bad movie. Yeah. It's like writing that line. Yeah. It's like either accidental or someone is just really good at making it look accidental. Yeah. And that scene, amongst some others, I was like, that's when I was like, is this movie taking itself seriously? Because it seems so jokey. Yeah. So ridiculous. And his over-the-top phantom voice. Like, why is his voice like that? He just... He, he was just in a fire. Yeah, like, the fights. This movie has some out of nowhere kung fu fights. I right. guess the, and that's the thing too. So he's not a musician. So he's not training Christine to be like a great singer. Yeah, he's like toning his body or something. Like I don't know what he's doing down there. It's just a regular um, revenge story. It I is. Mean, it's literally called Eric's Revenge. Eric's like, Revenge. <laughs> um, What was interesting about it was, and I don't know if Choppy Mall, was that late 80s? I believe so, yeah. Same thing. Because I think, like, when I was watching this, it sort of hit me how, like, topical and knowing they were of what malls were doing. Yeah, and Choppy Mall itself was also very self-aware. Yeah. If if this is a cinematic universe of sorts, it would make sense that this was a self-aware movie. Yeah. But I don't know if that was intentional either. And I think what was kind of interesting, well, we we watched, we binge watched all of Stranger Things before the last season came out. And, you know, season three? Yeah, deals with the mall. Yeah. And how the mall is kind of destroying, like, Main Street. And this film, Eric's Revenge, kind of had that. Yeah. Where, um, I don't know if we, well, I guess we can spoil it. It's a, four, like, it's a, almost 40 year old. Yeah, so we're good. It. So in this film, it's got the same sort of wronged monster seeking revenge. Um, and in some of the Phantom films, that's the case where it's usually he's a musical genius who has had his music stolen. Um, that was the same way in... Um, well, he thinks his music was stolen in the uh, Claude Rains one. Yeah. And he just misunderstood what was happening. And then in the Hammer one, it was the same. And in Phantom of the Paradise, it's the same. Uh, where he's a normal person who gets disfigured in his sort of seeking revenge. And in this one, he is, I guess they wanted to build the mall on his house. So they tried to kill him and burn his house down so they can build the mall. And I thought that was an interesting kind of thing where they were starting to, where the mall is like the monster. And I think Chopping Mall has that a little bit too. And I... It's so interesting as like a topical thing where you're kind of like by the end of the 80s, they know kind of like the beast that the monster, that the mall is, that that's kind of the monster. Yeah. Um, probably deeper than they intended <laughs> a movie like yeah. Phantom of the Mall to go. But that was something where I was watching. It. I was like, oh, well, that's it's interesting that they are doing that. And in, the, of, in, like, the decade that the film's coming out. Yeah, and now that there's the cruel irony that the mall is becoming irrelevant because of the internet, so... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Revenge is a... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the same year, there was a more straight adaptation of The Phantom of the Opera starring Robert England, best known for playing Freddy Krueger. So my 
I tried to watch this one for the episode, and I can't find it anywhere. Me neither. I then, and this was one that I had wanted to see because I had seen it pop up on some of these horror '80s horror documentaries. I've talked about it, and I wanted to see it because it's Robert England, and he talked about it being a tribute to the Hammer horror films. And I was like, well, I want to see that. Like, I want to see that with all these other films. And what was so weird was. I remember seeing this movie, not seeing it like playing, seeing it, seeing it. but it was always at Blockbuster. Yep. And it was so iconic to me of like Robert England and he was, there was, it was like him from the side and he was holding the mask kind of out from his like disfigured face, but the mask was like stitched together and I don't know if they're trying to say like he stitched it from like other people or something. But this is one I really wanted to see to get like that horror violent phantom. Because <laughs> none of these are really that. Yeah. Um, and it's nowhere. It's nowhere. Yeah. So I maybe tried, part two. <laughs> I even tried looking through uh, less than, let's just say, other means. And I couldn't even find it that way. <laughs> That's so weird. So... <laughs> it's like, it's Robert England. Like, it's Freddy Krueger. Like, yeah, I don't I know I why... Maybe it wouldn't yeah, be a distribution anywhere. problem. But that's um, really the sad. Sadder than the way the actual Hammer film made me was yeah, not finding not this one. Not being able to see this one. <laughs> Even if it was bad, I wanted to see it. Yeah. Um, so this one also had a planned sequel that got canceled, but they made it anyway, just not connected to it. It was called Dance Macabre. Yeah. And it was, well, it was supposed to be Phantom of Manhattan. Yeah. And I don't know, I haven't seen the original, so I don't know if they tried to set up a sequel where he, like, survives or... I don't know how they kill him off or if they do or what happens at the end of um, that Phantom. But, yeah, he was supposed to come over to uh, New York City, which is interesting because the musical sequel, Love Never Dies, is that same story. (laughs) Um, So I wonder if um, Andrew Lloyd Webber owes Robert England some royalties... Right. Maybe that's why that film isn't anywhere. Because yeah. he wants no trace of who he owes money to. Whoever owns the right to that movie, please release it. I want to see it. Yeah, please. Bootleg's fine. We know it exists. We so. know. I Yeah, I, unless inter- that's a false yeah. memory. I don't, I don't think it is. Right. And that brings us to the 2004 adaptation of the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, directed by Joel Schumacher. Starring Gerard Butler as the Phantom and Emmy Rossum as Christine. Patrick Wilson as Raoul. Another one that did get Oscar nominations did not win any. So up for cinematography, art direction, and original song, uh, Learn to be Lonely. Okay, is that like a credit song? Yeah, it was originally supposed to be performed in the movie, but I I think they decided it didn't fit anywhere, so they just had Minnie Driver perform it as like a credit song. Okay, that kind of makes sense. Um, I have a love-hate relationship with this movie, but I definitely think adding another song would have just been too much. I saw a deleted scene where you see Gerard Butler singing the song, and I don't see where it would have fit anywhere in the movie. No, because the film already does weird stuff with the timeline of events. Yeah. Um, And I just don't know, because I was watching it, and I was like, wait, when does the chandelier fall? Yeah. When does he kidnap her? What's happening? Like, this isn't even the musical. Um, But I have to say, it is... Just gorgeous. Like I love it's it. it's Joel Schumacher, so you know it's gonna be 
over the top. It's like Paris Opera House in Gotham City. Uh, just giant naked statues everywhere. Um, but it like looks great. And like the Phantom's Lair looks amazing. Um, the cast is really good. Like yeah. the people who they cast are great. Uh, Mini Driver as Carlotta is great. She's so good. Um, she's over the top, but like Carlotta is over the top in even in have the musical. You, have you um, heard what Mini Driver said about working with Joel Schumacher? No. Like after he passed away? Oh no! Uh, it's kind of funny you mention that because it does. She does dive into that. So she's playing Carlotta, and she's like obviously doing that whole big giant over the top performance. And I guess one of the crew members was complaining that she was too over the top. Yeah. And Mini Driver said that, like, without looking up from his book, Joel Schumacher is like, oh, honey, no one has ever paid good money to see Under the Top. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And she's almost, she's almost offensive to Italians. Yeah. I think, almost. But I think everything else is so grandiose that it kind of works. Um, she does really do a great job. Well... She's the only one in the cast who does not do her own singing because, like, Carlotta's, uh, like, a higher range than she yeah. is. Um, but between her and the singing voice, they do a great job at sort of, like, towing that line between this is awful and this is impressive. Yeah. And I think that's a really hard thing for Phantom the Musical and with the, a, a film adaptation because with film, you kind of want to get stars, yeah. You know, if you fill if you filled a uh, a Broadway film with Broadway singers, I don't think you would get people coming to see it. Yeah. Cuz they'd be like, "Who are these people?" It's a totally different audience. You know, a Broadway fan base will know who these Broadway actors are, but when you release that in theaters, people are going to be like, "Who are these people?" They they did get like originally they were even going to get like bigger names. Too. Yeah. Like Anne Hathaway was originally offered the role, the role as Christine, and that would have been pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, but she was working on Princess Diaries 2 at the time. Yeah, I mean, that would have been a bigger name. And then so Phantom is so, it's not, um, you know, they sing it like an operetta. Yeah. Uh, which was what I was going to say. And so you can't just kind of like pop singers or people who maybe have good voices. Because even in this one, you're kind of like, Gerald Butler's voice is fine. It's not Michael Crawford. It doesn't get that big, but it's okay. And it's the same with like um, Patrick Wilson's voice. Yeah. Um, Christine's amazing. She's like she was like the biggest surprise of the entire cast. I think so. Like, yeah, and she could because it's not even Phantom isn't really sung like other musicals. It's very operatic, um, and so you just can't kind of get good singers. You kind of have to get like opera singers um, or people that can do that range. And I think that's hard to do when you are doing a film with big actors is, you know, they may not be able to yeah. hit those high notes and stuff. Or um, like you have to find someone who could like dub over their singing voice like they did with uh, Minnie Driver. Yeah. Um, Gerard Butler actually had no prior singing lessons to doing this movie, which is like, that um, is a risk. <laughs> yeah, that is. And he does good. There's a couple of things like when he says triumph, in his first kind of singing part where you're like, oh, <laughs> like, oh, um, or his kind of the falsetto in music of the night. You're kind of like, uh, yeah, but, um, 
There, there's like a well, there's like a worn nature to his voice though that really fits. Yes, and I think it's a very because Michael Crawford uh, was such a unique voice, and I think Gerald Butler has that. Like to his credit, like um, I think he ha- he brings a very interesting voice to the Phantom uh, that is more of that kind of a rougher like world weariness to it. Um, and Christine's voice is amazing. The one thing about this film that I just can't get over is Patrick Wilson's hair. His hair is ridiculous. It's so so, and and it's one of those things where just the whole film, like, is dragged down because of it because you always see it. Yeah. And you're just like every time he pops up, you're like, all I see is his hair. <laughs> and if you're I like, have, why? <laughs> Why'd you do this, Joel? If I have one complaint about this movie, because I, I I'm willing to forgive so much about this movie, I'm. I'm, that's how I am with musicals. I'm like, I'll forgive every flaw because yeah. that's like my favorite genre. Um, the sound mix is kind of awkward. It's a little awkward. Um, it's a. It's also a. So it's not a musical with a lot of dance numbers. Yeah. Where where actors are singing and there's dancing. Um, there's the ballets and there's stuff like that. So you have this thing. I was noticing this watching it now where. This works live, but not on film, where you have the characters kind of standing and singing at each other, and that's all that they're doing. Yeah. And you're like, well, this is, they're not doing anything. They're just sort of singing at each other. Um, Like Christine and Raul on the rooftop. Yes. They're just standing there, and Patrick Wilson is just like with his hands on the side, and he's kind of just staring at her, and then they sing at each other. But that works when it's kind of like you're in a live theater setting and that kind of stuff. Um, And that's just a that's just sort of the issues of translating like a stage show to film. And then there are choices like when they switch some lines that should be sung into spoken dialogue. That annoyed the bejesus out of me. <laughs> Think of it. A secret engagement. Look, your future bride. Right? Just I'm like, just sing it. it. Why aren't you just singing sing it? it? Just sing it. There's no reason not <laughs> to no sing it. Not sing it. <laughs> and they, they do that. And I don't have a problem with, because it shocked me. I had never seen Les Mis before. Yeah. And so when I saw the movie and they keep singing, I'm like, oh my God. They're going to sing through this whole thing. So I don't mind that Phantom goes between speaking and singing. That is fine. I and the, the musical does that. Strategically. And like, you know, I don't know what the word is. Where also, they are talking to each other or they are singing to each other. And what this movie does that is so frustrating is they will sing and then like drop out to speak. To speak or to whisper or something and you're like that is so infuriating because sometimes they drop that right when there's like a little crescendo or something where you want the song to end or that line to finish being sung and they stop that to say it and i'm like oh and that's why? where the sound mix is the most jarring where it's like okay obviously you are not singing that line yeah and i know that's always <laughs> the case with musicals but it should not be that obvious it should not be that obvious yeah, oh, there was another part. Oh, when Raul, uh, when Christine takes over for Colada in the beginning and Raul comes to her dressing room, or he comes back, and it's that, you know, oh, what does he say? It's like, little who's Lottie. that voice? Oh, yeah, that's the little yeah. Lottie stuff. And then he comes up, he's like, who is that voice? Who is that in there? Like, in the musical, he sings that part. 
And then here he's like, who is that? Who is that in there? And you're like, just why didn't you sing that? Yeah. Like, why did you say that? Like, don't. It was like a couple of awkward choices. And I'll forgive a lot of that because again, yeah. I love this movie. Like, yeah. I don't want to like give the impression that I didn't like it because I, I watched it. I don't know how many times. Me too. And I think <laughs> watching it this time, I went from watching it. It was almost like one of those stay home sick movies yeah. where I just put it on when I'm homesick. And then I don't know if I burned out on it where I was like, this movie sucks so much. I'm never watching it again. And then just watching it uh, like today, kind of getting ready for this, I was like, this is not that bad. Yeah. And I think it got a, got like a lot of hate. I remember watching this whole YouTube guy just tear it apart, um, which was funny. But yeah, I'm like, this isn't... Like if you kind of know what the limitations are or what sort of the issues are, you can kind of like blow past them. Yeah. Uh, one thing that, two things that I can't get past is we all talk about the hair, but also the Phantom's face. He's not that ugly. He's not. I'm like, he's got a sunburn. Yeah. Like Gerard Butler with like mild burns on his face. Yeah. So, like he's still pretty. Like he fell asleep on his side at the pool. Like I And don't... suddenly he's blonde. He was he's had like the slick black hair right? and the you're entire like, movie. What happened? Like was that a wig? Like I, maybe it was. <laughs> like the whole thing came off. Like um I noticed that in Lon Chaney's is the mask is part of his cap. Yeah. So when he tears it off, there he's bald too. Yeah. Um so I don't know if that's what happened with that one but yeah the reveal was so like he's not hideous yeah like he's not um yeah it's a sunburn yeah like just put some put some aloe vera on that and you're good eric like yeah. i don't know what's going on so that was that's one of those where it's like it's disappointing yeah because you're sort of like because even in the musical his face is so disfigured um I guess you just really can't do that to Gerard Butler's face. You just can't. I guess. <laughs> um, but even then you lose kind of like that, you know, the Lloyd Webber version is famous for doing the half mask. Yeah. Because in the in the book, it's his whole face. Yeah. Um, and that's the way the Lon Chaney film is. So Lon Chaney wears the full face mask. And that's actually one of my favorite masks that's so unique, where it's like the cut of the of a real face... And it's got like that veil that hangs down. Yeah. Um, I was kind of shocked by that when I saw it because we're so used to just the sort of party city mask. Yeah. Like in the musical, there's kind of like the seduction of him where he's handsome on the one side. And then when the mask is removed, he's hideous on the other side. And it's kind of like the outside and inside, like the, the rotten soul underneath. And you lose that when you don't, like don't rot like away their face yeah <laughs> when you don't do that um so those are really the two the two really egregious things i yeah. think is Rao's hair because you have to sit through this whole movie with it bouncing <laughs> around um and then gerald butler's tan <laughs> yeah the not ugly ugly face yeah and it's but it is you know, it's good. It's yeah. not. I don't think it really is as bad as um, its Rotten Tomato score <laughs> makes yeah. it seem. There, um, there, there are some really spectacular things about it. The whole masquerade sequence is just yeah, gorgeous. It is. Um, oh, that's a funny thing that I think a friend pointed out to me was the song "Masquerade" talks about how colorful everything is. 
And then the masquerade scene is black, white, and gold. Yes. Um, but it's still good. Like, yeah. I mean, that's sort of a weird technicality. It's kind of a weird thing to get hung up on. But, like, yeah, that dance scene is great. I really like uh, the Phantom's Red Death costume yes, in this one. Yes, He's more, um, he's less renaissance-y. Yeah. So he doesn't have, like, the big flouncy hat and the big sort of poofy robes and stuff. Which is iconic um, for the Lon Chaney kind of version, but his more kind of like pirate, yeah. <laughs> I guess, where he's wearing more of that 18th century suit. He's got the slick back hair and like that really cool like skull mask. Like I think that's really cool. And the movie does try to work in a bit more stuff in the books. Yeah. Um, so we get like his backstory, even though, so they try to give backstory to Eric. Uh, but even that they change. So in the book, you know, he flees his family and he makes his way to uh, Iran where he learns how to kind of make tricks and traps and illusions and stuff. And then he goes back to Paris and helps build the opera house. And so he builds a lair for himself. Yeah. That's the lore in the book. And in this film, they do the whole thing where he was kind of like a circus freak who like kills his... The, his handler or yeah. trainer or something. Um, and then Madame Jury saves him and brings him to the opera house, which is already built. Um, so it was kind of nice to give a little bit of that. And then they, the film does have a little bit of the mirror torture room from the books. Yeah. Um, which was cool that they tried to bring in a little bit more like book stuff into it. Yeah. At least the film version, because those aren't in the play. Those aren't in the musical. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you a bunch of questions. I want to have them answered immediately. All right, so we did get a couple of questions this episode. One is coming from Milady of Disney on Twitter. Uh, the question is, who would be your ideal cast for a future production, musical or not, dead or alive? Oh, God. Those are so hard. I know. I'm so bad with names. But also, um, and also, like, there's so many names that there would is. be perfect um, for this. I would definitely... <sighs> Sometimes when I'm watching something, that popped into my head, but now they're kind of gone. I do think I, because just, he's got such a, uh, I don't know if he can sing at all, so I don't know if we're even going with, like, a musical version, but um, the elf from Rings of Power, him as the Phantom, I think would be amazing, because he has that, like, if he were to wear, like, a half mask or something, there's, that's such, like, an intense, like, look or stare from him. I might be giving a basic response on this, but I think Daniel Day-Lewis could probably knock it out of the park in his sleep. Maybe not so much the singing aspects. So if we're going to go for like a non-musical, yeah, we're we doing like a film version. Yeah. I mean, and he's stuff. done a musical before, but um, yeah, I Daniel Day-Lewis would be good for Christine. Like if we're going dead or alive, Clark Gable as Raoul oh, that would, would be, be cool. great. Um, Cary Grant. <laughs> Cary Grant. Um, <laughs> Honestly, I could kind of also see Clark Gable as the Phantom. Yeah, I, a little I could bit. see that. Um, I mean, he's kind of a he's a total jerkwad in Gone with the Wind. Yeah. I mean, he could be kind of a- evil. <laughs> oh gosh, and I'm, 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 I'm like totally my brain blanking is just on like, people, they, they but it could kind of be stole. anybody. <laughs> like I, mean, I could. Oh, I mean, I, Constance Wu could be Christine. Oh, that would be a good one. Um, I would definitely, I mean, I'm, I would cast whoever, like, 
I mean, yeah. I'm pro it depends, wings of power, diversity, cast whoever like, you want. Brandy what? Cinderella is like my yeah. go-to for casting. So it can be anybody. Like, um, it's one of those things where, like, depending on what direction you want to go with the musical, like, there are so many names that yeah. fit. Like, like, are you going horror? Are you going romance? Are you going musical? Like, I think that changes Like, if we're going to go horror, everything. Um, I could see maybe, like, a Florence Pugh as Christine. Yeah. Oh, um, that would be good. Yeah. If we're going to go pure um, horror, if she could sing, then cool, do the musical, too. I don't know if she can sing or not, but yeah, It's horror. almost weird, because I think, like, you would have... <laughs> have to because even in the non-musicals is, they still they sing. are in an opera but you could always dub that over you I could mean, who I could, else could be Christine? weirdly i could kind of see tom cruise doing phantom <sighs> weirdly i'd have to be it he's he i don't could, know if that's a heath ledger's joker kind of situation yeah where you're like i have to see what that movie looks like first before i could kind of pass any kind of judgment on it I'm just trying to go through things I've seen <laughs> with people. Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, yes. Yes, I can see Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, Hugh Jackman. Because Hugh Jackman was yes, also slated for Phantom, the, the for musical sure. version. Yeah. And um, that would have been amazing, but he wanted to make Van Helsing instead. And I'm sorry, I'm glad that movie exists. I love Van Helsing. <laughs> I, that is one of those, I don't really like Guilty Pleasure as a title of something. Because I'm like, if you like it, you like it. Yeah. And I fucking love Van Helsing. I watched the crap out of that yeah i hated it at first and now it's one of my favorite movies go figure no i just love like that kind of like it's almost so like that you can we can talk about that van helsing's good or bad it's fun movie it's very fun it's very fun and i felt like that is what the dark universe should have been more like than that tom cruise mummy one like when universal wanted to do like their own mcu with the horror monsters yeah is it should have been like van helsing or the brendan fraser mummy yeah like that's what it, the tonally should have been like um more of that camp yeah 30s like, don't, be, cereal. don't be afraid to make it look schlo- look schlocky as long as it's fun like people yeah. will go see it yeah so yeah um I'm trying to go three. Simu Liu could be Raul. Oh. I can see that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, Anyone who's pretty Hallie, can be Raul. Hallie Bailey. Yes. After After seeing her performance as she's, Ariel. Yeah, she has such like, a good voice. So she could be Christine or... Um, uh, yeah, I kind of really... <laughs> Yeah, you could go. So, you could go. So B-movie, many directions. Schlock and do Nicolas Cage uh, oh, as the Phantom. Yes, like if you want to do absolutely. like B movie garbage, you could do that. Um, Sean Bean yeah. could be a cool Phantom. Um, Viggo it's Mortensen. One of those things. Viggo Mortensen. You could go whichever direction you wanted to. Yeah, because really, that's such a. You know, that, I guess that's part of the and problem with Phantom I don't is it say, goes in so many different directions. I don't want to say that anybody could play these characters, but like, it's anybody one of those things like where pool. you need a specific, depending on what direction you want to go, then you could talk yeah. about the specifics. Yeah, if, you, if you're going like romance, that opens up an entirely different group of people than if you were going to go horror. Yeah. If you were going to go musical. That I think that changes everything um, about who you could bring. Them. Louis Tan could be Raul. Like yeah. if you're going more romancy, like it, uh, oh oh, 
that's what Pop, um, Henry Golding yes. could be Raoul. Yes. Or maybe he could be Phantom, too, depending on I haven't seen him play how he wanted to evil go. But maybe that would be the role that does it. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe that could be it. Um, yeah, I think it's that's a really hard one to pick because that story goes in so many directions. And even and going such through a this episode, we went through like so many different like renditions of it. Like, yeah. So it's kind of like... Because um, even like the the Claude Rains one. So you have Claude Rains who's kind of a horror guy. Yeah. But then you have Nelson Eddy who is just straight up kind of like romance musical opera stuff. So yeah. it really depends on what direction you're going in. Yeah. That's a good question though. So the Dollar Theater podcast also asked uh, what made me want to go into podcasting? That is an excellent question. I'm actually recording this uh, after the fact uh, because this does feel like it was directed more towards me. Well, a few years back, uh, one of my friends got me really into Welcome to Night Vale, uh, which is amazing, by the way, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that. They're great live. And then I started to like go down this rabbit hole of like other podcasts that I ended up really enjoying. Uh, podcasts like How Did This Get Made, Unspooled, uh, The Academy Queens is a lot of fun, Alternate Oscars... I just found myself getting really into like movie podcasts and I just kind of got the idea in my head earlier this year, why don't I start one? And I kind of figured out, especially after doing it, that I really enjoy listening to other people talk about the movies that they love. And of course, I like to talk about the movies that I love. So it just felt like the perfect format for a podcast. So I just decided to try it one day with uh, my Batman episode earlier this year. And what I found out was I really liked doing it. Some of the conversations that I've had have been like super interesting, so much fun. And I'm learning things by doing it. Like it's educational for me as well. So it was like a mixture of my love for podcasts and my love for movies coming together. And it just kind of worked out that way. So everyone actually subscribe to the Dollar Theater podcast. It is very fun. Uh, they just did an episode last week on Scream. That was great. And just today they released their episode on Midsummer, which I'm looking forward to listening to. It's hunting season. Applesauce, bitch. All right, and for this week's rotating segment, we're going to go into taglines. It's a fun little game uh, where I read through taglines of a movie, and uh, you have to guess what that movie is. Oh, God. Okay. I will lose. All right. No, no. You'll get... <laughs> I feel like... I, I'm going to like go for the least obvious ones first, and then I feel okay. like this one you'll get it eventually. Are these in a theme, or are these totally random movies? Uh, it's, uh, well, I just picked the one movie. Oh, oh, okay, so, yeah. okay, okay, here we go. Keep it nice and brief. <laughs> All right, the first one that it seems like the least obvious to me, they move, they breathe, they suck. Oh, Twilight. <laughs> Vampire Diaries. Um, not quite. Blade 2. <laughs> <laughs> that, those are good guesses, very good okay. guesses. Am I even close? Mm, no, Okay. <laughs> Foretold by a mystical book. Forewarned by a wise man. Fulfilled by a wise guy. Oh, is this Army of Darkness? Oh my gosh, oh. I didn't think it's a less obvious one. Oh, I, that was almost a shot in the dark, but then I was kind of like... 
oh book horror and then you were like wise guy and i was like that's the only one that's like mythical with that so i was yeah. like oh it's gotta be army of darkness yeah you got it you oh, got it God. in two guesses uh, I was going to go next with Trapped in Time, Surrounded by Evil, Low on Gas. That one I know. I would yeah. have definitely got that one. That's like, I think, the classic tagline for Army of Darkness. Like, I would have gotten that one <laughs> for yeah. sure. What was that first one? Uh, it was They Move, They Breathe, They Suck. So not not like they suck in a literal like vampire sense. Just like oh, they okay, suck, like they're like, just, okay, they're, okay. Like, sucks that they're here. Oh, okay. Sound the trumpets, raise the drawbridge, and drop the Oldsmobile. <laughs> Okay, that's I will. Yeah, that's very army darkness. Yeah, how can you one. destroy an army that's already dead? That one, I'm like, that's that's they literally put the part of the title in the tagline <laughs> there. <laughs> He's a 20th century guy trapped in the Middle Ages. Now you're just describing the plot. Yeah, I'm like, okay, well now they're just telling you what this movie's about. Yeah. So that yeah, that pretty much ends the segment. <laughs> like, I thought it was going to make that more difficult. Boom! I got it. <laughs> Well, that about does it for today's episode. Is there anything you would like to plug today? Um, if you are in the Orange County area, um, Museo's Houdini Unchained um, exhibition just opened and it runs until January 22nd. So check that out. I got a chance to do that last week, uh, last weekend, and I really enjoyed it. There's, it's very informative. Uh, oh, lots thank of you. things I didn't know about Houdini as a film guy for like, I don't know, the last 20 years or so, I didn't know that he made movies. Yeah. And it's bothering me <laughs> that, like, I, I've taken film classes and all of them neglected to, like, mention, oh, yeah, this famous magician that you've definitely heard of has done movies before. Yeah, it's really good. It dives <laughs> deep into all different kinds of, like, aspects of Houdini. Um, a lot of stuff I didn't even know either when we started the project. So yeah. it's, uh, it's really cool. Yeah, the 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 artifact the artifacts, the 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 video clips everything it's uh is artifacts the right word i don't know if that's, yeah yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah no it's great i highly recommend it if you're in the um if you're in the southern california orange county area thank you so much for joining us today oh, and my pleasure thank you for uh having me and indulging my uh love of phantom oh no that's that's why i that's why i do this <laughs> I, love, I love i love doing this um, and for everyone at home, thank you for listening. I hope you are not just entertained, but somehow reborn together. <laughs>